This episode is supported by Enscape, empowering your design workflow by turning your BIM model into an immersive 3D experience. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. A little bit of housekeeping up front here. This is the final episode of Troxel for 2021, and I'm taking some time off to spend more time with my family during the holidays, and maybe you will do the same. I recently saw a post on my social feed that said, the challenge I'm doing this month is called December, and it's where I just try to get through every day of December. Dad jokes aside, I know there is immense pressure in architecture to get projects in by the end of the year, but I hope you won't kill yourself to make it happen. If there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's that the world doesn't end if an architect doesn't meet their deadline, and you'll never get that time back to be with your family. I hope you can rest and recharge because from everything I'm seeing and feeling, we all need it. In this episode, I welcome Atif Cotter, AIA. Atif is the founder and CEO of the prop tech startup Redist, which operates in the real estate development arena. And he says that $100 billion of real estate incentives are claimed every year. And his team is building the tools to make that more accessible so better buildings can be built. He was previously a member of the acquisitions and development teams at Extel Development for real estate deals across the United States and Canada. He also worked at Turner Construction and at Gwathme Siegel Kaufman Architects. A licensed architect himself, he is a frequent speaker on real estate and entrepreneurship at Columbia, Harvard, MIT, and Yale. Atif serves as a city planning commissioner in Hoboken, New Jersey, where he lives, and he sits on the boards of the Hudson School, Haven Adolescent Community Respite Center, and On Guard Arts. He received his bachelor's degrees in architecture and in urban planning from MIT and his MBA from Columbia Business School. He's also a fellow podcaster over at the American Building Podcast, which is a podcast series sponsored by Michael Graves Architecture and Design that he hosts. In our conversation, we talk about his mission to aggregate available resources that are difficult to find and access in order to help redistribute financial in what he calls near monetary incentives in the real estate development space, the lack of coordination between governmental agencies' data, how he built a team and leverages their superpowers, how his career led to Redist coming from an architectural background, and so much more. This was yet another fantastic conversation, and I hope you enjoy it and share it with your colleagues. So without further ado, I bring you Atif Cotter. Atif, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed listening to a number of your episodes before, Evan. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I, I, I'm particularly interested, you're the first person on the show, particularly in the real estate 
arena. I don't know what mm-hmm. what else to call it. I, that works. Uh, so <laughs> it's an arena where people fight yeah, with each other yeah, to the gladiator. death. Gladiator. <laughs> <That's how it works. laughs> that does sound like real estate. I mean, especially mm-hmm. when you slap that giant stack of papers down in front of somebody. That's all. Yeah, uh-huh. it's like fight or flight. <laughs> you have two options. Fear is a big motivator in this industry. Yes, I bet. So. I bet. So, so tell me about Readist and what you guys mm-hmm. are doing with that, and why you're doing that. Because I, I think uh, mm-hmm. it's it's an interesting take on. I assume what you did working in all the different capacities that you have saw some dots that needed to be connected. And I've had a previous mm-hmm. guest on the show that talked about kind of the dysfunctional state of data that's out there mm-hmm. and who can have access to it and is is it you know there, there's so much inconsistency so i imagine there's a, a an amazing story in here so i, I would mm-hmm. love it if you would take it from there yeah absolutely so the what redis is it's a, a startup so that means it's focusing in a particular arena which is real estate and on a particular problem which is the capitalizing of uh, real estate deals using technology as the tool to improve uh, that process. So taking big picture, the the thesis that we are focused on and the one that we um, spend all our time thinking about is this notion that's very unique in the United uh, The United States is very unique in, in following, which is that uh, public taxpayer-funded resources, so our taxes, should be used for funding private economic activity in order to deliver a public social good. So essentially, it's the the partial privatizing of responsibilities related to affordable housing, energy efficiency, downtown revitalization, and jobs, which are the four main things that American incentives tend to incentivize. Um, the reason why this is so unique is that it's $100 billion that is redistributed every year through various levels of government. And no Western or developed country approaches that to even within a mile of that. Uh, it's the amount of money that's so unique. And it's the fact that the real estate industry is the foundational industry that is the recipient of these types of incentives, with the idea being that the the process of building is able to touch all four of those uh, different categories. That's Redist and the big picture of it. Uh, and you're absolutely correct, Evan. It came from an actual personal experience. So of our eight team members, almost everyone to a T uh, would describe themselves as a real estate person before a tech person um, because they all came from the industry, whether they worked at Extel or the city of Hoboken. I'm a city planning commissioner there like myself or my co-founder at Goldman Sachs. Uh, that was That's kind of the background that we come from, New York City real estate and finance. So for us, this is a very personal problem that each of us has faced in very, very different ways. And particularly for me, it's I saw this issue of the access to uh, to public incentives. And under access, it's finding and using are the main kind of variables we're talking about. Uh, That was a reality, whether you worked at a huge fancy company like Extel Development or a small company like my own Amanath Properties that I started when I left Extel or on the, the public sector. So when I was appointed a city planning commissioner two years ago, I saw that that was similarly the case. Is the the issue of access to these incentives was a big problem. So you're you're absolutely correct. That was the the foundational foundation to it and the process that we took to getting there. And your so a couple of things. First, I guess your name is a play on the redistribution kind of idea mm-hmm. plus real estate, right? The R E. Mm-hmm. I see that all over the place on Twitter, especially the R E. Like there's a guy Jake that I follow on Twitter. It's Jake R E I, and it's real estate investor. But I thought he was just a fan of the the company R E I until I until I finally <laughs> clued in. 
So, so this idea of redistributing these incentives that are available that not everybody has access to or can find, e- even be aware of, is a value-added service to a lot of these people. Like, what, what are we actually talking about when it comes to what's available? The uh, real estate incentives, that, that broad terminology relates to anything that would encourage someone to do something that they wouldn't, I mean, that's the idea yeah. that they wouldn't do otherwise, right. but that's, that's a whole other part of this discussion. Black Friday sale. Yeah. You're, you don't want to go shopping, <laughs> but man, you've, you're just compelled to. <laughs> of course, like everyone has to have Cyber Monday because no one likes to shop online, right? Yeah. I, I think so basically incentives encompass uh, anything that is monetary and we also extend it to consider near monetary things. Uh, so for us, what that means is tax credits, tax abatements, grant programs, low interest financing, rebates. Uh, those tend to be the broadest uh, sweep in terms of the classes. And then each of those tend to do with different types of taxes. So for example, uh, tax credits can deal with federal income tax versus state income tax. All in all, there's about 17 categories that we track. The one that is the edge case that we do include and is oh, considered like the last one that we include before things that we don't include is uh, zoning bonuses. So for example, in New York City, uh, there are at least two different programs where you are able to increase the amount of uh, square footage of your building because New York City is unique in that we use the concept of ZFA, a zoning floor area that other cities don't Mm -hmm. use, but you're allowed to do more of that um, if you do a certain thing. And one of those in particular that people are probably aware of is uh, having a grocery store tenant on your ground floor. Mm. It's called a fresh bonus. That's the sweep of what we're talking about. Okay. Interesting. So because like you said, you've got this unique case in New York city, I'm sure there's different things all over the place. Can you talk about like the coordination or lack of between these government agencies? It seems to me like that's the consistent story is that there is a clear lack of coordination. And I guess that's where you guys fit in, but, but just speak to like what's actually being left on the table also? And maybe that's a part two to that question, because I would imagine there's a ton of development going on. There's a ton of projects going on where it's just out of sight, out of mind, or lack of ability to follow through on this additional layer of things that actually probably has its own timeline and, and extra layer of complexity with with a certain payoff. Excellent question. So we've, through Redis, we've interacted with about 250 companies over the the life of our own company, which is about a year and a half. Uh, And all of those companies have participated through a pilot program, which was a lot about the initial growth of our firm and now an early access program where we're in the last lap of the mile of uh, releasing the product, which we plan to do early next year. So now people are actually paying us for this, which is kind of wild. Through the context of all of this, we've gotten a good grasp of what like the, the specificity of on a particular project, what did they do and what could they have yeah. done? What did they think they were going to do and what could they do? All of those questions. And we found that dominantly our users have are mid-sized firms where they have a large enough profile of projects where things like this make a lot of sense to them. It's considerable dollar value, but smaller, uh, small enough such that they are uh, widely understaffed. Mm. So that is the sweet spot for us. And for these companies, uh, we have found anywhere from about $350,000 to uh, $2.2 million on a mid-sized project that they've left on the table. And that's a lot if your project is $10 million. Yeah. So that tends to be the what we're seeing. The, the more difficult and perhaps really interesting question is, 
what is left on the table from what could be allocated from an agency perspective, not from the user perspective? Mm-hmm. And I think the the only person we've the only agency or group that we've seen even approach that question is the Brookings Institution. And for them, they came up with some estimates of sizes. But what makes this so fascinating is that oftentimes it's not incentives may not necessarily even have a limit to them because they are. Uh, abatements or they might be credits or deductions that aren't actually a current outlay of money. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, even that question's one that is wildly difficult to answer. It's interesting because you start to get into the, like, those are things that constraints are what design is based on. And so when you're going through the process of design, if you don't even know what those constraints are, they'll, they'll never come into play. So thinking about this from a design perspective, I mean, I assume that you guys are also plugged into that side of it as well. Is this kind of the near monetary thing that you were talking about, or is that something else? Yeah, so uh, Leslie Robertson from Lyra, he had said that having a a client that doesn't know what they want or doesn't know what they need is like pushing against a cotton ball. So <laughs> I was like, what are you gonna, What are you doing? I think for us, the the question of the question that we've been focused on is understanding in full detail and full context the problem that exists because we know that if we're able to do that and to develop a solution there are a number of different business models that could work for us so our hypothesis right now is that it's a subscription-based service that is going to make the most sense as opposed to an all our cart product so that's the that's kind of the, our approach but uh, to, to be frank that is something that we're open to exploring on our path to getting to the release of the product next year it seems like you know, as architects, and I want to get into kind of how architects fit into this, because uh, mm-hmm. part part of this is probably just, I assume, just an awareness of offering this value or working with you guys on the the back end or, or you know, pre-project mm-hmm. to kind of get these mm-hmm. uh, constraints set forth so that you know what you're up against, but also to add, give that value to the owner as you go through the process. Mm-hmm. But also from, um, I mean, one of the biggest problems with design is that typically dollars are not attached to decisions made in the software. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, I mean, do you see it getting to that point? Because man, as a designer myself, seeing what those cost implications are, even if, you know, they're ballpark, right? Like this is fuzzy math. It doesn't need to be super precise, but by changing envelope based on zoning or whatever and and actually getting that real-time feedback would be so valuable for architects to own that kind of information space on top of their their design space or directly integrated with their design space i should say you're you're exactly correct and i feel like uh so the the cut which is uh, for part of new york mag had the article in their last issue of the magazine where they talked about the us being on the precipice of the super app so the super app that allows you to do all of your consumer things, like, for example, finding a date, finding a taxi, and paying your bills mm-hmm. all together, which is something that's common in India, Indonesia, and China, but just hasn't come to the United States yet. I think that we're probably we're, we're further from that as an industry in the United States, but I can see an eventuality. And let me kind of explain this, is that for us, the focus is this connection of uh, incentives to the decision maker. Namely, we're like the vanguard of that is the broker, and then secondarily is the actual owner of the asset, so uh, developers and investors. But not too distant from us is a product like Cove Tool. So Sandeep Ahuja, 
they one of the first investors was Urban Us. Um, so I've had a chance to talk to them and to their investors as well. Their focus is helping particularly engineers and architects to understand the implications of a particular envelope design to their sustainability goals. Right. It's not that big of a leap of logic to imagine if there were there were a monetization super app for the real estate industry to have us there and them there, and you're able to toggle between the two in order to uh, understand not only um, what are the sustainability implications, but then the next leap being, oh yeah, these are the incentives that you can get. And oh yeah, PS, because there's these other ones you weren't thinking, maybe you should go back and change the design in order to accommodate this money that you're able to get if you did. And and then this all leads back to that kind of lack of coordination because now Mm -hmm. you're actually having to kind of, you know, Location matters. Everybody's got a different set of incentives and variables that that lead to the eventual outcome that's very different from a, most likely the jurisdiction right next door. How do you start to manage all that? Because that, I mean, this was the topic of the conversation with Lance Amato at, at Kanoa, and it was like, you know, they were setting out to define energy codes by location, and it was like thousands everybody had a different well, yeah <laughs> you're holding the the gun up to your head it's like how do you even deal with that so the the lack again of coordination between the jurisdictions and the data available and like i mean I, I imagine there's a lot of secret sauce going on in the background there but that to me is like the real problem to be solved from a an app development kind of a standpoint i, I think you're right and i would say that the so i had a chance to talk to fed negro who's the founder of Kanoa. He's a fellow architect, and we actually had done a um, a charity bike ride, a 50-mile charity bike ride like 10 years ago. <laughs> so I actually saw the article. I was like, oh, my God, his number was still in my phone. Phone, And I was like, I gave him a call and just asked what he was up to. Uh, so I understand what they're doing. And I think that taking a bigger perspective like us, them, and other companies, there is this reality that we, you come up against, which is that there's so little coordination. So, for example, uh, being a city planning commissioner in New Jersey, there's 554 municipalities. Yeah. 554 municipalities in the maybe the third or the fourth smallest state in the United States by land area. Yeah. When you come to realize that that is the largest hurdle for us to be able to think big. And in order for us to solve the greatest crises of our generation, which is climate crisis and affordable housing, it's you got to think big. Yeah. And 554 different municipalities that each have their own city planning commission, their own zoning commission, their own city council, you can't think big. And I think that the first step towards this process is the consolidation of this information so people can make the best decisions within the broken system that we have. And then I think that there is a not too distant future, which is a situation where someone, Cove Tool, like I mentioned before, someone from Kanoa, someone from uh, my company actually goes to the legislator. So, for example, Cory Booker is uh, my home senator from New Jersey. He's one of the one of the, the senators in Capitol Hill that writes quite a bit about affordable housing and his legislation. What if actually, rather than uh, lobbyists on K Street that are trying to protect private sector interests, someone actually comes up and says, this is not the effectiveness that you're looking for. Perhaps you should rewrite your legislation to do this. And this is what we're seeing people want when they're searching and when the the results that are coming from it. And actually seeing a rewriting such that you might actually find some level of coordination and big picture thinking in a place that tends to be unidirectional and gets a lot of uh, a very large amount of outsized feedback from a very small percentage of the United States population. It seems like they're 
I, I would imagine that the job description is very much like keep things running like they've always been running. We, we run up against that all the time in this industry. That's it's slow to change. It's etc. This really is. It really does sound like a problem we're solving, but it really takes a change in behavior. It takes a new mindset. How are you doing that? Like you're saying, you're going to them, but but then but then there's like building consensus. There's buy-in. There's all these other layers on top of that. Like they're one piece of the the flywheel, like there's other gears in all around them uh, that also have to move with them. How, how are you seeing that work in the positive direction? So I think that what you described in terms of doing no harm is so emblematic of a, a recent past generation. Mm-hmm. So for when Barack Obama, after he left office, he was asked, like, what was his guiding light? What was his North Star during his presidency? And it was do no harm, which I think now in the context of where our country is going, that sounds so quaint and so provincial yeah. of an idea versus what we actually need to do. And to be honest, I mean, if I said that there is some some silver bullet that any of the, the CEOs, of any of these three companies that I mentioned or any of the others have, I don't think anyone knows. Yeah. I think the idea is that there's two things that we're working with. One is in the near term, uh, trying to do much better with the broken system that we currently mm-hmm. have. And the second one is waiting until, or maybe not waiting all that long, until millennial and Gen Zs are now the senators on, yeah. on Capitol Hill yeah. and are now the Congress people on Capitol Hill. Because I'm not sure how else to play that game. Do you game. not have a fear that that they'll turn into like a very similar version of <laughs> like that's one thing that I've seen. Like like I'm <laughs> there's a quote I actually have it written down uh, from from another podcast that I record and I'm flipping through pages here right now. But it was a uh, it's a Car- a Dale Carnegie quote and it was mm-hmm. today is the tomorrow you worried about yesterday, right? And yes, <laughs> and it's <laughs> you, I used to think you know like. I'm never going to be like my dad. And now I'm the dad. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and, it, and it's funny because it's like, I see myself acting like my dad did. Right. And even though, and so I see this working in architecture firms where there's five generations of people and you can see the budding of the heads and the the arguments and the thing like the, the it's good. Those are great conversations to be having because everybody's kind of pushing on everybody all the time. Like that's perfect in a creative institution. And then I see people slowly, getting neutered over time. <laughs> and that that to me is the biggest fear because what we don't want to see is people who think one way now and act one way now not act like that in the future because if if there is consensus at those earlier younger ages to make these changes for better for these big audacious reasons uh we got to keep that alive somehow and that momentum I think you're right. And there is this kind of funny arc that always happens with the American voter is that you start out as Bernie Sanders and you end up as Mitt Romney or now as a Donald Trump. I don't think that that arc is is one that is really reflective of the reality and the nuance of things. Because I think if you look at the point at which the United States had the largest expansion of legislation aimed at social welfare. That was the the New Deal. A lot of that happened across a political spectrum of thought. And it was one that was that find that found resonance across a large number of age groups. I think that if you are able to really message and and explain the benefits of things, I think that you might be able to find 
a consensus across traditional boundaries. And I think for us, we don't particularly see uh, public incentives as something that is a party A issue or party B issue. It's actually one of the few things that finds massive consensus across all people in the political spectrum. And for us, we imagine that when it is explained in the context of jobs, downtown revitalization, effectively responding to climate issues and housing for everyone in a way that they find affordable, not just urban, not just people of color, not just the little kind of slices and dices that like to be done when people kind of talk from their special interests, but actually broader. I can't imagine anything more American than that. And if we as a company or we as a collection of people that are working in this arena of technology to change the real estate industry are able to communicate that effectively, then I think we might be able to get beyond this kind of transformational arc by age that you were describing. Yeah. So finding that common ground that kind of Mm -hmm. does slice consistently through the generations makes a lot of sense. So do you, when you present it, do you present a grand vision like you're talking about, or, or is it a balance? We talk a lot about this in our company is, is training the pigeon the one little step, because if you go three steps out, it's like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. I'm out, you know? So is it finding that balance? Is it, is it more on one side of that than the other? How how do you guys approach that? So to be honest, that's a conversation that we continue to have. And what is so fascinating is as a CEO, my responsibility is to do both of those things. So at the same time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think that, for example, I can mention to you how we have been adjusting and tweaking what our tagline is. So uh, initially what our tagline was, Redis makes it easy to find and use the $100 billion of real estate incentives that are given out every year in the United States. Okay, that is tactical, that is product focused, and that is action oriented. Great, that's wonderful. And where we have now arrived in our transformation is to say that Redis unlocks public incentives in order to transform America. So yes, that is audacious. Yes, that is aspirational. But I think that there might actually be a context where the same day I'm saying both of those things to different people or the same people at the same time. Depends what language they speak, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I could see some of those words sticking out more to certain people than others, right? So you've got to feel that out and and approach it. <laughs> it's like you do A-B testing in the same conversation. Which one did you, which one did you gravitate toward? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And I think a lot of that is some of the most successful design firms do that. So Michael Graves, architecture and design, they're actually an investor in Redis and we co-produce the American Building podcast together. I think that they, their leadership is quite apt at, at understanding that messaging and how you say certain things to certain types of clients and in order to find the thing that's resonant. Because I feel that too many architect firms give the impression and perhaps also do this thing where hello, this is the beautiful, shiny object I prepared. Do you want my beautiful, shiny object as opposed to this other way of having that conversation? Yeah. Let's take a moment and talk about the sponsor of this episode. Enscape is a leading real-time rendering and virtual reality tool for the global AEC market. It plugs directly into your modeling software, giving you an integrated design and visualization process. With Enscape, you can render in real time and walk stakeholders through your rendered model with incredible ease. Now buildings can be experienced long before they're built. And I have to add here that it's fun to use. 
Seriously, you cannot underestimate this. It's what makes this tool so amazing. This is something that most CAD and rendering programs can't claim. It democratizes your ability to create beautiful renderings at any time during the design process and use it as a tool to make valuable decisions during design. And as my friend Clifton Harness of TestFit says, it's one of the few well-established companies open to innovating in AEC. And you can see the outcome of this, where his company recently showed off how they were able to take advantage of the new Enscape SDK to incorporate the real-time renderer with TestFit. More than 200,000 unique monthly users from over 150 countries use Enscape to envision better designs. Don't be left out. To learn more or sign up for a free 14-day trial, visit enscape3d.com slash trxl today. That's enscape3d.com slash trxl. So, so I've been through that process many times, going after projects and kind of competing for projects. And not to go too far down a tangent here, but I, I do feel like there's there's designers out there who are very comfortable being in the position of figuring that stuff out on the fly. And then there's mm-hmm. other architects who go in where everything is pre-scripted and we're not going to go off script. I probably fall somewhere in the middle, but I think that the 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 first one that I talked about there where it's like on the fly figuring it out as you go, it gives you that opportunity to read and react and to move that conversation and it takes a lot of skill to be able to do that well and not totally tank the conversation because you don't know what you're going to say next do you know what the two things like this is what we talk about on our team in terms of what are the superpowers that we have as a team and what are we looking for in new hires because we're hiring like any well-funded and interesting startup is right now is uh curiosity and empathy and i think that if you uh, have those two things as an architect those will be insanely valuable because those aren't necessarily things that are often talked about or discussed in in architecture school in a very explicit way. Uh, And I think that if you are able to do those two things, then you are going to be much better not only producing good design, but but getting the projects that you want. When you're able to be curious and to ask questions about why people are saying certain things as your clients and being empathetic to understand the particular issue. So for example, Kirk Mitchell from AKT Designs He's a designer for my development projects that I did previously before starting Redist. Because he invested in deals himself, he understood how every single day that we chose to spend more time choosing the paint for the project was one more day that I was paying water, sewer, mortgage interest, and real estate taxes in one of the most expensive real estate markets in the Northeast. Mm. Uh, So when you have someone that is able to empathize Mm -hmm. with those concerns, whether I verbalize them or not, that is what makes a a truly excellent designer versus one that's like a nah sort of designer. Right. It's interesting to think about it that way because there's obviously he understood where you were coming from and and did mm-hmm. that come through development of relationship or was that just something you felt like he was really gifted in kind of figuring out as things went on in a very quick manner i think it's both and i think that it's it has to be in your nature to want to be curious and empathetic because it takes time to be those two things it's much easier to be dictatorial or declarative um, but i think there's also a reality that in the course of the conversation and the development of a relationship that you get better and better about being those two things in the context of that specific relationship. There was a book that I read a while back called Mindset. I think it's by Carol Dweck. And it's about 
you know, basically, are you intrinsically motivated? It, it kind of talks about open or closed. You know, are you open-minded? Or are you closed-minded? And um, it, it starts to get, it, it blends in with some other books that I've read to um, Drive by Dan Pink is similar, right? They're talking about motivation and mindset and openness versus closed. And so I, I kind of think, you know, there's there's a lot of research that shows that this idea of being open-minded is hard to cultivate. It's in it's embedded in you. So finding that person is is a, a key. And there's tons and tons of work research that's gone into this. Uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about. I think that the what I have found in my own work experiences is that there are certain things that are coded into people's behavior mm -hmm. depending on their gender. Mm. And I think in particular, what I have found is with Redist, as we've uh, hired more and more uh, women on our team, I feel that the ability to be curious and empathetic as a whole for our team has shifted in such a positive direction. And I feel like if someone talks about, and I, I don't mean like even saying the word DE&I because it institutionalizes something that's actually much more personal, mm. which is diversity, equity, and inclusion, is that if you do it in a very from a very cynical perspective and from a very like, oh, God, they're telling me to do it sort of a thing. Right. I don't think you're really going to reap the business benefits of it, which is to have people that are wildly curious and empathetic because they come from just different coded behaviors as gender, potentially different experiences based on their class or race or any other background that they have. I find that so such like an interesting uh, kind of tag along idea with what you just described, mm -hmm. which is actually something that's so good as a CEO to, to realize, because you can take advantage of that as a business and get a better, better business for it. Yeah. Same thing with uh, extroverted versus not versus, but in complementary to introverted. And it's there, there was another book, Susan Cain, I think wrote quiet and it's all about introversion, right. And understanding introverts and, What's interesting was most people in the firm that I was at were introverted. And I think that that's very interesting because this community celebrates the extroverts and it has for a long, long time. If you think about like the Fountainhead, for instance, right? It's it's the the man on worst top book of the, ever. Right, right. But that's worst. And that's what it is. It's idolizing this mm -hmm. this not just extroverted, but the the ego and all all of these other things. Right. So when you think about even the architects, right? Like that's what people think about is that they're thinking about probably, I, I would venture to say that it's mostly extroverts who are attention grabbing and huh? um, they're the ones who, who want to be on the magazine cover. They're actually asking, right? And where the introvert would never even ask that. Never. I don't want to be there. Don't put me there. I'll stay here and I'll do kick-ass work and, and I'll just stay under the radar. Yeah. It's interesting to think about that from a team building perspective mm -hmm. because when you are, and you said you have a team of 18, mm -hmm. I would, uh, uh, hopefully 18 soon. We have eight okay. right now. <laughs> all right. All right. All right. So eight, sorry. I, the, the idea is to, to complement by all of these pieces of the puzzle fitting together. Uh -huh. Right. Uh, because what I think what we've seen as far as habitually throughout the generations is mm -hmm. hiring like you've already got, right. It's like minded. <laughs> And I think mm -hmm. the difference that we're talking about here is, is the difference between being like-minded and being like-purposed, mm -hmm. but not like-minded, right? <laughs> Those mm -hmm. are two very different things. And I think in particular, what 
what I find is that I think we're on the precipice of change in terms of in our industry and design. Let's talk about design a little bit more than perhaps technology. That's kind of a different part of the real estate industry. But with design, I think that for so long, the way that we award and recognize the Pritzker. So the Pritzker is focused on the individual as if the fallacy that there was this one lone wolf right. at a firm was responsible for all of the amazing work uh, that was done. Right. Uh, and I think if we perpetuate that idea, then we end up in situations like this. Someone like Richard Meyer, who you can just Google him and you know right. why he's no longer at his firm. Yeah. And someone like Zaha Hadid. So I think that there's a lot to look up to her. She's uh a uh, fellow Muslim, she is, uh, was, uh, she's from an Arab background or a non-white background. Mm-hmm. She's a woman. So many things there to look at. But I think what I found particularly cutting about when you, when you allow this lone wolf aesthetic to uh, perpetuate in our industry is that someone like her can say in regards to the, the World Cup stadium in Qatar that when asked about what responsibility does she bear in regards to the working conditions yeah. of the people, largely from countries like where my family's from, so from Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, what responsibility does she bear f- to, to tell the clients that if you are des- if you're building this building I designed, there are certain things that you must be responsible for? And she said, my responsibility as an architect ends at the design. Yeah. And I think that lone wolf is the, lo- the lone wolf congratulatory structure allows for those things to happen when that may not be reflective of the largest priorities of the people that actually get work done in our industry, which are the mid-level and the junior level people. Yeah. The introverts, right? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I'm just curious, maybe final segment of the show, if this were, Mm -hmm. you know, how did you how did you get to this position? I think it's interesting from a, you know, obviously from what I can tell you care about design Mm. and you do think that architecture can change the world. I mean, you're talking about these bigger ideas. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about sustainability. We're talking about fair having housing, right? Like the housing crisis. So how did you get to this point and, and how does architecture fit into that? I think for for me, uh, so I'm a licensed architect. I have the three letters after my name. <laughs> so when uh, someone asks me what I am, I will always say an architect. And I think that that is such an empowering thing to be able to say because I don't believe that architecture is a vocation. I think that architecture is much more about being a problem solver and with curiosity with empathy, understanding a problem and creating a solution for it, whatever your context is. So if it's designing a building, if it's building a building, if it's developing a building, if it's building a startup, any of this, I think it's the same situation, just a different media or a different uh, platform to do it. Um, I think that the path to getting here was to be able to first to be able to recognize that, that architecture is not a vocation, uh, not only a vocation. Uh, and I think the second one is believing that there is a path beyond corporate America. And I think that there is too much of an emphasis, particularly intelligent and capable people have, about collecting fancy things. And I think I'm able to say this because I've spent 15 years of my collecting 
all of these fancy things in terms of degrees and companies and titles and all this other stuff mm-hmm. and designation. So yes, it's maybe it's a little rich for me to say this, but this is my honest feeling is that if you if you spend a large portion or too long or too much of your life in this collecting phase, then you aren't able to make this leap and create something truly beautiful and truly amazing. So I think that this kind of funny portfolio of things that I do between Redist as my primary, that is my focus. And then uh, the podcast is part of our way that we communicate our company's value to the greater world and partner with Michael Graves to do it. Or being a city planning commissioner with some of the the free time that I have uh, to understand what is the public context to what we're doing. All these things, I think, wouldn't have been possible if I imagined that my greatest kind of being or my greatest way of existing was that I had to work at a company where people's name, people recognize their name, and I got a salary for it. Mm-hmm. That I think is, that's it, is that I think understanding the the fact that architecture is much more than a vocation and realizing that your career can be beyond corporate America. Yeah, I think that kind of vocation adjacent, you know, that you talk about being a licensed architect or a registered architect, depending where you are. It's, it's re- I, I love what you said earlier about being a problem solver up, above and beyond, right? Like that really, to me, is what that license is about, is saying you're a licensed problem solver. And, it, you know, talking about things they don't teach in school, this is, I think this is one of those things, because what you're talking about is that this type of thinking applies to any kind of design problem. And I think I I use the word design problem loosely because if you're a problem solver, right, it doesn't have to just be design, uh, but it does fit into so many other places. And I think that people only understand that by experiencing it. People outside of the sphere of architecture. So if, if it is a question like you're serving on the, on the, City council, uh, city planning, city planning, city councils and elected. That's one. right. I have no interest. No. In <laughs> you're like holding no. up the cross. No, not no. that one. Um, so, so if you're if you're serving there, I mean, I'm sure you're able to maybe convey that because uh-huh. of that exposure uh, level to people who show up to those meetings, which is probably mm-hmm. a kind of a revolving thing, right? People show up to for different reasons, and they're not going to be there all the time. So it, it gives you that ability. I think that having an outlet like that is a great place to showcase mm-hmm. that ability. And it's, it, it's kind of like you're on, you're on the clock when you're there in that capacity. It's just like, what's the problem? Let's solve it. And it's not necessarily like, I'm only going to be here if it's an architectural problem. So, so I love this idea of kind of being a licensed problem solver and expressing ourselves that way, because I do believe that architects can be applied to just about any kind of a problem and, and help make it, a better solution because of that training and because of the experience that we've had on the scale that we have. In particular, I would say that I've been really impressed by the AIA and a couple things. One is who the AIA has chosen as their keynote speaker for our annual conference. Mm-hmm. And I think having, for example, the partners in charge of business development yeah. for a big. Yeah, that was a fascinating talk. I, was I love there. that one. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> I'll send you my notes. I took this like this beautiful kind of notes from everything that Sheila was saying. Mm-hmm. I think you might be interested and I'll send it to you, maybe include in the show notes yeah, or something. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one of the other ones is there's a psychologist that talked about how do you express confidence in what you're doing with this idea that how do you sell better? I mm-hmm. think that was the extrapolation mm-hmm. of it. 
I think that I've been particularly impressed about with the AIA. And the other one is that there actually is a group within the AIA that talks about legislation and ways that our industry can actually be active and advocate for things that make sense. For example, the historic tax credit has been on the chopping block again and again and again and again this year as part of the reconciliation budget, which is absolute nonsense. It shouldn't be. That's that's the craziest idea ever. Mm. But I think until you have our industry mobilize and say, no, just like the same way the pharmaceutical industry mobilize around everything that's a value to them, why shouldn't our industry be doing the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you get architects to pay attention to that when they have a deadline every week. <laughs> it's a good point. I, I I think there's it's it's tough. I think the the tactical one is, for example, the AIA has a mailing list that I'm like I joined when I went to one of the conferences, and they just send you out like text blasts about call the senator about this or call it all. Right. That's an easy tactical one. I think a larger one would be taking appointed roles, for example, like the one that I'm on. And then if it's in your blood and you you want to do it and you want to get into that arena. Run for office. Like, how is it that we haven't had a senator yet that's, an, at least I, I, that I know of, a U.S. senator that's not an architect? Yeah. I, 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 can, I don't think there's very many, if any, architects that are in the U.S. House as well. How is that yeah. when our industry touches every single other industry and has such a critical role in the way that our cities, towns, and rural areas even look? Yeah, there was a, a talk that I gave a rant about autonomous vehicles and like their impact on architecture, right? Like mm-hmm. that was the, the idea. And it was how many people are working on autonomous vehicles as an example, this shiny new tech objects, you know, it's autonomy, level five autonomy. What are the implications of that in the community that you live in? Okay, so how many people, I don't know, globally, or even just in the industry are working on autonomous vehicles? It's got to be tens and tens and tens of thousands of people. How many people are in your city in your jurisdiction are thinking about the implications of that three two one zero i don't it's it's that small <laughs> and i think in in, in uh, similarity i had a chance to talk to matt west so he's uh, running for i believe it's a new a new seat in the state of washington new u.s house seat and my friend robin Logsdon is his campaign manager so i had a chance to talk to him and he he is a cryptocurrency investor Mm -hmm. that is running for u.s house imagine if we had a cryptocurrency investor developer and investor writing the legislation about cryptocurrency that's going to be coming down the pike that's not already absolutely versus someone who is no offense to anybody but someone who's 80 years old and is a good 60 years away from from any understanding of what any of that stuff is and now just take that example for us anything related to our industry yeah there was a did you see what wyoming has done they they made cryptocurrency kind of one of their i don't know i don't even know how to say it well but Mm -hmm. but basically the governor said yep it's good here and Wyoming is a state that is, I think, the lowest population per capita, the lowest population state as well, just in numbers, but per capita, even smaller. How do you, how do you attract people to, like, we, we've seen Miami be incredibly successful with this as of late, attracting people because basically other cities like San Francisco is kind of the, the, the poster child for this right now. It's like, nobody wants to be there. And then basically the, the mayor of Miami is like, how can I help, right? I see an opportunity here and starting to run these jurisdictions like their companies, right? They're trying to attract talent. And so Wyoming did that with cryptocurrency. I think it's very interesting because all of a sudden uh, a DAO spooled up and it's called City DAO. And within like a few months, they organized and bought 40 acres of land 
with crypto. Very interesting to see how the and 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 to your point, can you see that happening with somebody who is eighty years old? And it's probably not going to happen. So uh, it, it's interesting to kind of see the the level of engagement and competition happening because of these exciting new technologies, whether they go somewhere or not. I think it's that you know, we're in the proving ground stage of that, and it's very interesting to watch. And I think there's two approaches to this. One is that you. You use incentives. That, yeah. that is the whole That's exactly point. what it is. Yeah. That is exactly what it is, is this system of incentives that we have developed as a country and being able to leverage that for its fullest use by being able to make sure that that is accessible, understandable, usable, all of those verbs that you need. Yeah. Um, that That is how you motivate actions that may not be the ones that people take if you simply go on uh, market motivations. And not only that, but you're attracting the people who are going to opt in. I mean, there's a big difference between creating something that is attractive and incentivizing the right kind of person to want to opt in and go on that ride mm-hmm. or go on that journey or, you know, do that development or whatever that thing is versus trying to implement change into an existing system where you're kind of pushing boulders uphill because everybody's resistant to it by nature because it's institu- institutionalized and for all these other reasons. It is interesting to kind of see these things come alongside. I mean, this basically is a theory of disruption, right? It's like the clients of the incumbents are not the same clients as the ones of the disruptor, right? And so the people who are interested in going along for that ride, I find that's what's so fascinating to me about this whole tech startup world is basically people are coming up with these ideas and then saying, hey, who wants to come with us and develop it as we go into what we need it and want it to be? And I think that's the most exciting thing about it. Because you're basically defining and solving your problem again and again and again and again. Yeah. And what's the that's the coolest thing ever. I think it's really fun. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I think the whole real estate angle, especially from an architect's perspective, is fascinating. And mm-hmm. I, I could definitely see like a part two to this because the conversation, there's a lot of depth that I'm sure we can get into. So good, maybe that'll happen as you said, your, your launch is kind of coming early 2022. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yep, well, I would love to talk to you again at that point. Uh, so is there anybody anywhere, anybody can follow along with what you guys are doing? Where are you guys most active online? Sure. Uh, so I think the best places to check us out would be going to the Redist website, so that's R-E-D-I-S-T dot U-S, and checking us out on LinkedIn. Uh, and also, if you are interested in a more conversational approach to this idea of incentivizing and how we capitalize buildings, check out the American Building Podcast. You can just go to AmericanBuildingPodcast.com, and Redist uh, co-produces that with uh, Michael Graves, Architecture and Design. Thanks, Atif. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I'll have links to all that in the show notes. And I appreciate you taking the time. Cool. Thank you so much for your time, Evan. Thank you to Enscape for their support of this episode. Visit Enscape3D.com slash TRXL today for a free 14-day trial. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at GableMedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out and, of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast where you can find every episode. 
You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.